Welcome to the Vergecast, the flagship podcast of suddenly private subreddits. I'm your friend David Pierce, and I am coming to you from inside my MetaQuest 2, where I am playing Population 1, which is kind of like the VR version of Fortnite. And like Fortnite, you can't just pause the game because it's a live battle royale. But this is the Vergecast. The show must go on. You know what I mean? So here we go. And hopefully nobody finds me crouching on top of this windmill. Anyway, we have a super fun show today. We're going to talk about all of the chaos happening on Reddit right now with Christian Seelig, the developer in the middle of the whole fight. Then we're going to talk about Meta's reaction to the new Apple Vision Pro headset and that new Twitter competitor the company is launching. After that, we're going to talk about the new 15-inch MacBook Air with Monica Chin, who's been testing it, and I think just got the other Macs in to test too. Lots going on this week, y'all. All that is coming in just a sec, but first I gotta figure out how to jump off this windmill without dying, and I think somebody just found me. Here we go. This is the Verge Cast. We'll be right back. Support for the podcast comes from Canva. Presenting to a group of your colleagues can be nerve-wracking, so why not ease some of that anxiety with Canva? Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and that's it. You're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Welcome back. Right now, you may have seen this already, on Reddit, there is an all-out war going on between the company and its users. Thousands of subreddits have gone dark, the whole platform even went down at one point, all as part of a huge protest against new changes Reddit is making to how it operates its platform. There's more to it than this, and we get into a lot of it in the segment you're about to hear. But basically, the thrust of it is that Reddit has always given away access to its API for free. That meant developers could build Reddit apps or bots or just tools that work on the platform without paying Reddit, the company, to do so. Now, Reddit is looking towards an IPO and just trying to make sure it can exist in a world where being unprofitable for almost two decades is kind of a bad look. And the company wants those developers to pay up. How it spiraled from that into a fight for the future and soul of Reddit is the story we're about to get into. And it really, weirdly enough, centers around one guy. His name is Christian Seelig, and he runs a popular Reddit app called Apollo. Neilai and I called up Christian to talk through everything that's been happening to him the last few months and where all of this goes next. Christian, hello. Hey, David. Hey, Neilai. Neilai, hello. Hello. Okay, so Christian, this, this story is a mess. <laughs> There's so much going on here. We should probably just start at the beginning. Like, let's, let's do a little bit of like history lesson here. And I think for our purposes, this story starts... What was it? April 18th? Yes. Which was the day that will live in infamy to some extent. And that's when Reddit announces big new changes to how it thinks about its API. And you get a phone call that day. Is that right? 
Uh, yeah, I got, my phone kind of lit up, and there was a lot of like, "Oh my God, your app's gone!" And I was like, "What are you ta- What are you talking about?" And then, I, then I kind of saw the announcement, and I was like, "Okay." And then I saw there was a New York Times interview where they said um, Reddit apps won't be affected or something like that. Um, and it was an interesting choice of words that I've, I've since found out was not correct. And then I got a call a few hours later, and then another call a few hours after that, and and we talked it out. And yeah, yeah it kind of became the the conversation that started a few months. What was your read of the situation that day? Like for you as a as an indie developer, Reddit's like we're making these big changes to how we think about our API, how other apps and services integrate with us. Like what was your read of what this meant for you? My initial read, the, the initial post was very light on details. It was kind of like we're looking to charge, uh, but we're not telling you how much, which kind of made it difficult to digest that. Because if, I, if I'm selling you a, a cheeseburger, but I don't know how much I'm going to charge you. That it's a completely different conversation, kind of thing. So, so it was kind of light on detail. So I was like, I'm going to wait for the phone call, kind of to uh, set my expectations. And honestly, the the phone call went super well. Like the the Reddit representative, uh, nicest guy, explained everything. Kind of was just um, laying it all out in a way that made sense to me. That they they um, can't keep indefinitely kind of financing um, these businesses with their data while they get nothing in return. And it was kind of just one of those conversations where you're just not along and you're like, that makes sense. I've kind of been wondering uh, if there was an agreement we were going to come to at some point. And the way they kind of set it up sounded really great. Like the pricing was in terms of kind of being equitable and making them whole. And there'd be an opportunity to kind of have a more concrete relationship going forward. Uh, that sounded really exciting. So it was kind of like the developers I talked to as well as myself were kind of like, okay, this could, this could go well. It sounds positive depending on what the price is, but um, everything sounds good so far. When you say these businesses, there's there's a lot of nuance in there because Reddit is pretty unhappy about the AI companies scraping all of Reddit to train large language models. And I suspect if Reddit was to go to OpenAI and say $20 million a year, like the user community would not be in such open revolt. When they come to you and say that number, it's very different, right? Correct. So was the conversation with Reddit in the beginning – was there that nuance in there that, hey, there are some businesses that we should charge a lot of money to, and there are some indie app developers that we need to charge some money to for a variety of reasons, and we're going to find a rate for you that's different? Or was it, we're doing this across the board from the beginning? Um, yeah, they didn't mention like the, the, the big um, open AIs of the world. It was very much geared around like apps like yourselves have built these businesses over the years um, that rely on our data, and we're providing it to you for free. And we don't think that's kind of going into an IPO. We don't think that's like a tenable long-term solution. Um, mm-hmm. There wasn't any um, breakdown by like third-party apps would have a carve-out of a certain price, and then maybe everyone else or AI would have a, another a price point. It was very much focused toward third-party apps, at least on the phone calls I was on. So and the the structure of that thing they described to you sounds totally reasonable, right? Like 100%. This, and and it's interesting to me that you had even thought that this was kind of coming at some point because it does seem like at some point these businesses have to figure out how to make money. Reddit has never been very good at making money, and it would not be that hard to look at you and be like, "Well, he's built a profitable business, <laughs> and we give him all the data for free." Like, let's let's figure out a way to sort of even the scales back a bit. And I I can imagine coming out of that phone call being like, "Yeah, this sounds relatively reasonable." It, it honestly did, and like to the extent also that there's like APIs like Reddit Chat and voting and polls and whatnot that um, they've historically not made part of the API for whatever reason, and kind of the idea that oh we're maybe engaging in this more formal relationship where we're uh, closer to a partnership where I'm paying you and you're giving goods in return. Um, the possibility that oh we might even get more APIs available, we might have better contacts at Reddit, et cetera, et cetera. Like this is a more mature, concrete relationship. Like that honestly sounded exciting. Like it, it almost provides a, a clear future forward where I'm paying you, 
you're giving me services in return. Like our, our relationship here is much more clear. And, and the concept of that sounded really exciting. But it's one of those things where kind of the the devil's in the details and, and how you get there kind of decides everything. What has it been like in the past? I know the sort of outside story is that Reddit has not particularly been interested in the past in like serving and maintaining a really good API for developers to use, but it's been open to you and has been free for a very long time. Like, is it a good API? Like, what has the experience been like over the years? To me, I, I thought it's been a great API. Personally, like I admittedly, like I came into university and started building Apollo. So my breadth of experience with APIs isn't enormous. So I don't have the ability to say like, oh, the Twitter API was so much better. Uh, but to <laughs> me, it, it was honestly very straightforward. It was well documented. The the only issue, I guess, as the years went on, like newer features on Reddit were suddenly not getting added to the API. But outside of that, yeah, it was well documented. It was easy to use. If I had questions, Reddit was responsive. And if they were changing something in the API, they'd give a good amount of foresight and say like, we're changing this to this. This might break X. You should make a change by this date. Um, we're happy to help you with that. Um, and it was honestly like a great relationship. That turn that's like, we're not, we're going to stop adding new features to the API. If you just look back historically, that's the first red flag, right? That's the, that's the warning sign that maybe they don't love the third party apps. Did you ever take that as a sign or a warning of any kind? Um, (laughs) maybe I'm a very naive person, but in my head, like I was kind of looking through like, oh, there's a new, um, voting and polls endpoint, for instance, in the API. And I was like, okay, what's that look like? And so you can kind of like sniff the network traffic for the Reddit app. And I was like, oh, they're hitting this like GraphQL endpoint that is kind of like an internal endpoint. It's not the same api.reddit.com or whatever that historically all of us have been hitting. So it's like, okay, maybe they're moving to a model where they're going to test these APIs internally, make sure they've got all the kind of wrinkles ironed out, and then they'll make it available. And then, then of course, three years goes by and you're like, <laughs> Yeah, maybe not. So yeah, I think there was a naive uh, optimism at the beginning there. And then I kind of justified it as that they're moving to this internal stuff, but maybe they just don't have any engineer staff to kind of port them back. It's it's more of a, a negligence rather than a maliciousness. But it's honestly tricky at this point to say kind of what the intent was there. That's fair. So then the, the second part of the story and where things get really wild and where we should start talking about the last two weeks was the very end of May. You, I guess, had a series of phone calls that ended in posting like the the Reddit post heard around the world. I'm assuming that was like one of the biggest days ever in the Apollo subreddit. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So yeah. you like you really like juiced the engagement that day. Congrats! On yeah, that. <laughs> no, it, it was it was honestly like one of those things where like everyone was like messaging me and being like prior to that announcement saying like you've been saying pricing's coming out for weeks, and I was like, yeah, I know Reddit's been telling me it's coming for weeks. Like I, I want to know as much as you do, and they're like, okay, well tell us. So I was like, okay, I've got the pricing. Like here's the details. And there's just a lot of people, I guess, interested in knowing the details. And then kind of once they found out what those details were, it kind of just snowballed from there. And yeah, it it blew up a lot more than I thought it would. (laughs) I would say. So walk us through that a little bit, because the the high points of it, basically, as I understand, are you get on the phone with Reddit and they're like, okay, we have a we have pricing for you. It is essentially at the end of the day going to cost you $20 million a year just to pay for the Reddit API to keep using Apollo, which I'm assuming to you immediately felt disastrous like i i I don't know maybe you have 20 million dollars lying around in which case like that's cool but like walk me through how that conversation goes when reddit calls you first off i don't but if either of you do (laughs) we can talk after the show maybe help a guy out but no so like the conversation wasn't like i don't think they knew the cost it would cost me um like insofar as i kind of knowing that the call will be quick and they normally only block it like 30 minutes i built like a little app that you could put in like the the cost per api call and it would spit out like a bunch of facts like kind of like an excel spreadsheet of being like okay here is uh what it would cost a month a year 
for the free users, like the subscription users. Here's how it kind of compares to Reddit's, the financial figures they've posted historically. Um, just so like, as soon as I was delivered the figure, I could kind of jump into action mode and say like, this is what it's going to look for me. Um, so they, the figure they said was um, 24 cents for 1000 API calls. So I, I kind of plugged that in and it was like, saw the zeros start like <laughs> increasing. And, and it was like, okay, so like I make you know, 7 billion requests a month, which sounds like a ton, but there's, I almost have 2 million monthly active users. So there's a fair bit there. And I, and I kind of just said like, look, this is going to cost me like $20 million a year. And I think there was kind of like, there's a few awkward silences where there was kind of the conversation, like our intent isn't to kill third party apps with this decision. Like that's not what we're hoping to do. And it was kind of like, but do you see how charging me $20 million as a guy in an apartment would effectively have that, like that, that would be the result. And I think there was kind of like an understanding there, but at the same time, like finishing the call, I was saying like, I legitimately don't want to be antagonistic here. Like if this is something you feel like, given the figures I've told you and how untenable it is for me as a business, like if this is something that you want to take back and maybe uh, we can talk about this more and maybe hear my concerns and maybe meet at a, a figure that would be a little better. Like I'm, I'm happy to do that. I won't post anything um, until like you've kind of landed on something concrete. And the, the answer was kind of like, no, this is the pricing. Like um, post it if you want. So in like the half hour between that call and when they called me again because they wanted to go over a few more things. Um, I made the post and it kind of went from there. Do you get the sense that Reddit knows that Apollo users are power users of Reddit? This is something I think about with social networks all the time is that their data blinds them to the reality of the, the platform. So you might say, okay, there's only 2 million Apollo users. You just don't know that they happen to be 2 million of the most important users on the platform or the most vocal or the most invested and you piss them off with a decision like this. Do you ever get the sense they knew that Apollo was important to that class of users or that you were in the middle of the relationship that Reddit had with that group of users? Honestly, like, and I, and I say this with a lot of respect for Reddit, but I, I feel like this was the decision that like kind of got rushed out the door a bit and they didn't kind of do that due diligence on like understanding that stuff because yeah there's there's a lot of stuff where like like even just making a really big pricing announcement but not having any pricing um to like <laughs> taking like there was a lot of discussions where they were like we'll have it in two to four weeks and i was like great and then kind of six weeks passed and they were like okay now we have it like there was a lot of it felt like it was kind of being decided on the fly um and even insofar as at the end of january i want to say january 26th i had a, another call with reddit like prior to all this where they were saying like we have no plans to change the api at least in 2023 maybe for years to come after that and if we do it'll be like improvements so for them kind of like two months three months later for them to for them to say um look actually scratch that we're planning to completely charge for the api um and it's gonna be very expensive kind of made me think like what what happened in those three months like this clearly wasn't something that was um like cooking for a long time and i, and I don't think they kind of understood how much this would affect people and the kind of the response that they would get because they're, they're honestly they're smart people and I, and I don't think if they kind of understood everything that they do now they would have made the same steps at least i would hope not because yeah the, and even there's like there's quotes where they'll say like the average Reddit user and other apps uses like 100 API requests a day or, or whatever it is. And it's like in Apollo, like you can almost see like depending on how much more of a power user, how much more API requests they use. Like like my free users use around 200, which is relatively close to the 100. But then like my subscription users use closer to like 500 because they're passionate Reddit users. Like they're paying for something, they're probably going to use it more. And it's kind of like, yeah, Apollo does use a lot of requests because these people are really passionate about Reddit. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, especially if you're trying to monetize on a user level. I don't know why the user engaging with the platform more would be inherently a negative thing. So it's, yeah, I think I've been more confused than not at some of the, the calls they've made. Well, so Reddit said 
we don't want to kill third-party apps, but we just went through this with the Twitter API, which pretty explicitly wanted to kill third-party <laughs> right. apps. Do you buy that either at that moment or now with kind of two weeks of more conversations in hindsight? Like, do you think Reddit actually doesn't want to kill third-party apps? Because it sure looks like it does. I think at the outset, they were under the impression, I will be terrible and say, at the outset, I honestly don't think they did. Um, or maybe I'm very naive. Like, maybe they didn't care about us at all, but they were like, we know you're important to a subset of users and we we know there'll be a big blowback if we get rid of you. So we want to make uh, some arrangement where we can keep you, but you're not a pain in the ass. But I think as time went on and they kind of understood where we were coming from and things like only giving us 30 days to make these like monstrous changes, I think it started to muddy the waters where it's like, well, if you don't want us to die, why are you giving us such aggressive timelines and why can't you bump things out or listen to us? Or like, why are you acting in this way? And, and I think to a certain extent, like some of the blowback from like initial posts from developers being like, this is going to cost us a lot of money. I think they almost went on the defensive internally and said like, you know, these developers are entitled and they just want a free lunch or something. And, and I feel like it got very personal when it didn't really need to, when it was just kind of like a, this is going to kill my business. Like, can we have a path forward? And it, and it just kind of got ugly when I don't think it needed to. Well, that's the other part of that question is like, even if Reddit doesn't want to get rid of third party apps, it sure seems at this moment, like it wants to get rid of you. <laughs> I mean, it does like it's it's gotten so bizarrely personal and like Steve Huffman in, in the AMA he did about this stuff, either explicitly or implicitly referenced you a bunch of times. There's been this weird accusation about you blackmailing Reddit for $10 million. And I listened to the audio that you posted and that's a very weird interaction. And I kind of think everybody was weird in that interaction, mm. but we can come back to that. But like this became about you in a very real way, both the sort of community rallying around you. And then you've become like enemy number one to Reddit in this fight. How did that happen? <laughs> like, is it just because you're the one posting the numbers about what this costs? I think it's a combination of that. And from one of the mod calls, from what I understand, they said Apollo is the biggest API user, at least. Um, so I think there's... Apollo, I've been fortunate enough, it's, it's pretty popular. So I think there's a lot of eyes on it. But yeah, I don't know how it got so personal in, in terms of like my initial post. Like I, I tried to very much thread the line of like, here are my numbers. Like, this is how much I use multiplied by the number they gave me, which gives me this number. Like, I'm not saying screw Reddit. Like, let's go, you know, the Huffman is the worst person imaginable. I was just saying like, these are the figures. And I don't think they agree with the the statement that they made about being like equitable and, and based in reality based on the public revenue figures they've given me. And I think that kind of blew up from there. And I think they took a lot of offense to that when it was kind of like, they themselves said they weren't interested in talking about the price anymore. So I was kind of, my only option was kind of say like users, this is the price I was given. Like, I almost don't know what to do here. And it's one of those situations where like at every step of the way where they seem to have gotten progressively more offended, I, I feel like if the roles were reversed, they would have made the same decision. Anybody would have. It was just kind of like a straightforward trying to be communicative. Like at, at no point have I tried to be like, these guys are the worst. Like it's always tried to be like, here are the numbers. And I don't think this is reasonable uh, because these numbers are so high. If they had offered to buy the app from you, would you have sold it to them? Um, it, I guess it depends on the stage. If, <laughs> I mean, I'm just some guy. So like if the number was high <laughs> enough, sure. Absolutely. Like, I, I, like yeah, absolutely. Everyone's got lie. a number. I, I feel you. Yeah, 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 exactly. At like the stage where it was clear that they weren't interested in having third party apps around anymore, just because of the pricing and some of the, like the, the API changes around like explicit content and whatnot. At that point where it was kind of clear, like we don't really uh, see you as part of our long-term future. If that was a point where they said like, 
that being said, we would like to maybe work with your user base or, or take your user base and figure out a way to like make them happy in the context of the official app and like work with you and your app through an acquisition or something to make that happen. Like I, I honestly would have listened to that. Prior to that, it would have had to have been a pretty good number just because I love building Apollo and like having a and like being so in touch with so many people through the community. Like it, it would have to be a big number just from like losing such a big part of your life and what you do every day. Like um, there's there's an emotional penalty to losing that that is like hard to quantify with money as, as superficial as that sounds. What did it feel like when you saw, I think it was Craig Federighi put Apollo on stage at WWDC. Like a couple of times. Yeah. It, it has been a real moment for this app. How has that felt? Oh, that blew my mind. I was, I was sitting with like a friend who works at Apple and I was like, I think I was tweeting something and he was like, kind of nudged me. He's like, you're going to want to watch this. And I, and I looked up and was like, Oh my God, like that was so cool. <laughs> it, it came from absolute nowhere. Like I had no idea that was coming and it was just the nicest thing. Like Apollo has been mentioned, like it's, it's been in a slide in a few keynotes or like the state of the union or something, but to have like Craig Federighi say like the Apollo name, I was like, just like looking around like a crazy person. I think like there was like Ashton Kutcher was going to run out or something. And, but yeah, it, it, was, it was really cool. And meanwhile, this is happening like right as you're publicly announcing plans to shut down the app at the end of June. At that stage, like, the cognitive dissonance of that has got to just be insane. Well, like I, I felt really bad because I was like talking to my Apple rep and I was saying like in the event that Apollo is like a part of stuff, like I just want to be clear that like at this stage, I don't think I have to shut down like things with Reddit are still like we're, we're talking and things seem civil and like I'm happy. So like and then it just very quickly degraded from there that I, I felt like oh crap, like I hope they didn't, I hope I didn't rub anyone the wrong way by like misleading them that Apollo is like going to last forever when in reality, reality, like when I was at that keynote at that time, it felt great because it was like, yeah, Apollo has legs here. Like things are going to get better. It's in the keynote. Everything's great. And then it kind of just fell apart from there. Which brings just to uh, my favorite segment of every Vergecast. Let's do some math together. <laughs> uh, there's, there's nothing like math on the radio to really bring an audience together. Because I think there's been a lot of questions and a lot of debate about what it would look like to continue to run Apollo. And I think one of the things Reddit has said is that the way that the API works, it should cost less than $1 per user per month. Your math said it would cost about $250 per user per month. Correct me if I'm wrong on any of these numbers. On average. Okay. Yeah. And so there are a bunch of folks out there who are like, okay, we'll just charge us $5 a month, give some of that money to Apple. We'll keep the rest, give some to Reddit, everybody wins. There are other people out there who are like, okay, just make it subscription only. So only people paying for the app can use the app. And it it does seem like you went to, I can't afford this. I have to shut down the app fairly quickly. I'm assuming you went through some of these other scenarios before you got there, but like walk, walk me through how you get from, I owe $20 million a year. I have a very popular app to, I definitely can't afford this. My only option is to close. Sure. So I talked to like a lot of uh, the iOS developer community is pretty tight knit and there's like a lot of group chats swirling around and, and I talked to a lot of smart people and, and like, I guess it's, it's a two faceted answer, I guess, like at, at a high level. So say, yeah, just charge $5, Bob's your uncle kind of thing, right? The issue there is that, yeah, I'm averaging for your average user uses about 345 requests per day per user. And then if you extrapolate that over the month, it would cost about $2.50 to support them. The issue is there, that's the average user. So a free user uses like 200 something requests. An existing paid user uses closer to 500. So for that existing paid user who naturally uses more, that's closer to 360, I think is the, is the math like uh, that I would get for a bill for each of them every month in its current state. And if I discharge $5 to them, you take off Apple's 30% or whatever, and you're down to 350, you're already 10 cents in the red per user per month. Um, so that's kind of 
the calculus there is already pretty tricky. That being said, if I had more than the 30 days, there, there's a possibility that I could go in and like some of the stuff where I check your inbox every so often, um, or I preload a page for you that I think you might scroll to, I could kind of cut down on all those and maybe cut that 400 down to, I don't know, 300, 200, like um, if I had more than 30 days. But even beyond that, there's, there's even a subset of users where like approximately 5% of my users use between one and 2,000 API requests a day, where at the low end, those would cost $7.50 a month. Um, and you can imagine the users who use the, the app the most are kind of the most likely to pay for things. Um, so they'd be kind of like the, the, the most obvious ones that would want to pay for the app. And when they, you're looking at them costing like $7.50 a month each, it's kind of like, do I have like a $5 tier that hopefully covers most people? And then once you expire that, is it like a phone plan where I call you up and say like, <laughs> do you want to top off for the month? And it's like, and that's not fun. So, but that's like, that's one facet of it. Like say I, that's a big if, but say I solve all that. The other issue is that like with the very short notice of 30 days from when the pricing was announced to when we start incurring charges, I've got about like, say like 50,000 yearly subscribers who have already paid for a year of service. So say like before this announcement, based on the fact that back in January, Reddit told me they wouldn't be changing the API at all this year. I sold David a, a year of Apollo Ultra for say back in April. You've got still like nine months left on that subscription that you're owed because you already paid for it, as you should be. Um, and that was based on operating costs that I had for like design services, um, server fees. Like I have a part-time server engineer. Like I was like for a dollar a month, a month or whatever it was like that, I can make a profit on that. But suddenly I've got like a dollar or two extra like a dollar minimum, if I can get those API requests really far down for those 50,000 people who have already prepaid. I can't monetize them anymore. They've already paid. So starting July 1st, uh, those people will start incurring a bill of $50,000 a month for me that I have no way to monetize um, because they've already prepaid. And, and that's where the calculus got really difficult, where it was like, okay, I have a bill of yeah, 50. And then like maybe the next month, um, some of the people would, uh, who were close to expiring would expire and it would go down to uh, 11 months. And maybe it would only be 45,000. And then the next month would be 40. But you're potentially looking at like hundreds of thousands of dollars in bills I would get for Reddit from people that I can't make a single more dollar off of because they already paid my old operating costs. And that's where it got really tricky where when Reddit only gives you 30 days to like try to transition those users or have them age out and there's no like grandfathering in place or anything, that's where it gets really difficult. And you almost do the math and you say like, it would be cheaper just to like close up and refund all these people than it would be to just pay Reddit like hundreds of thousands of dollars for these users. And, and, and that's where it got really tricky. Yeah, so it's like you combine those two things and it was just like everyone I talked to was kind of just like, I don't see how I would make this work. And then when you add on the extra fact that like Reddit's kind of like saying these like bizarre things around like threats and blackmail and like <laughs> they, they won't answer your emails anymore, it kind of becomes a thing like I can't pay for this. How to make a profit out of it is very difficult. And Reddit seems like they have no intention of wanting to work with me or third party apps anymore. It, it kind of becomes like, what's the future here? <laughs> If that yeah. makes sense. And that was kind of where I landed on it. I was staying at an Airbnb with like seven other people for uh, Dub Dub and was just kind of like talking with them over. And it was just kind of like that, that Wednesday night, I was just like, I don't see any other route out of this. Like, it's just kind of, it's gotten dire. And that was kind of when I started typing up my post and being like, yeah, this is kind of. There's an alternate universe in there where the next thing you do is like leave Cupertino, go to Sand Hill Road and like convince Mark Andreessen to give you a bunch of money to get you through this. <laughs> Is that is that ever a thing that occurred to you? Um, honestly, no, not so much because like I I still don't see how like the path forward would be would be working. Like if I said like Reddit, I can pay your twenty million or or fifty thousand dollars a month or whatever it is. I still feel like there's this like 
target on my back where almost they're going to say like, we don't want to work with you anymore. Or like the APIs that you do have, they're just suddenly going to start to break down or something. Or it just suddenly felt like the relationship was a lot more sour all of a sudden. And I've kind of always loved that Apollo was self-sustaining, that I didn't need venture capitalist money, that I could just say like this simple concept of like, if you want something, pay me for it and I'll give it to you. And that's the whole business. Like I, I kind of like the simplicity there. It felt like something from 500 years ago where you just, it's an exchange of services. And, and, I, and I really like that. And I kind of didn't want to muddy the waters with VC money at any point. So yeah, I mean, it's a great question, but it just wasn't really anything I was looking to do. There's the other piece of that, right? That, that direct relationship. I pay you for software. You give me software. We're done. Reddit can barely monetize its own users, right? Like they're not making money and the way they've chosen to monetize is mostly advertising, which right. is not exposed in your app. Correct. If Reddit had come to you and said, all right, you can use our API, we'll lower the cost, but you've got to start serving our ads. I Like, I don't know how I would have felt about that as somebody who has used Apollo. Like, <laughs> I would have been like, oh, that's pretty icky. Now I'm paying you for software, but I'm getting their ads. Yeah, yeah, that, like, but that's one of those things that I felt like if they did, it would have shown like a little bit more effort to um, include third-party apps insofar as they'd have to build kind of that integration in. And yeah, it, it's tricky because... Like if that was a path to to survive, like I wouldn't like it either. I I prefer not to have apps and I don't, or ads and I don't mind paying for an ad free experience. But if that was the only way to survive going forward, like that's something I also would have entertained, like like a revenue share where like you make X amount of money, we want half of it off the top. Like that's something that would have been fine. Like there was a lot of arrangements I think they could have gone with that just um, weren't quite as uh, (laughs) killer for lack of a better term. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that a little actually, because I think one of the questions I've had following all of this is what do you want from Reddit? Like if you could sort of rewind back to the beginning of this, I'm sure the less animosity in all directions and also less money, but like what, what could have happened in that phone call on May 31st that you would have just hung up and been like, great, cool, perfect. Sounds good. Win, win. Everybody let's move forward. I think it would have been a a matter, like in an absolutely perfect world, it would have said like, okay, we're also going to maybe like half the price because that would have taken like my 250 a user down to like the about a dollar 25, which I charge to new users a dollar 50. So it would have been something that like, Hey, my existing users, I can at least afford to keep like them around. Like those, they won't put me in the red. That would have been great. And that's when $5 a month becomes a reasonable thing. Right. Exactly. And the existing users who have already paid would suddenly like the the calculus there would be a lot easier to keep them around. But like, they sound like they're very adamant on the price, which I think is unfortunate, but like, I don't think they're going to budge there. So at this point, it would just kind of be a a factor of like, a, (laughs) we're going to give you more time to transition this. Like if you have existing users, we'll we'll give you a few months to kind of make sure that you can transition them to new plans or, or figure out an arrangement where they're they feel like they're made whole and you have sufficient time to kind of adopt the new payment model, try out these new APIs, test everything and, and have the proper time to do that. I think time is almost like the, the biggest thing that they could have committed to that they didn't seem like they wanted to. And then beyond that, kind of just the like, uh, I'd love for both parties to come together and say like, man, things kind of got <laughs> worse than they were here. Like, is, is there a path forward where we can just say like, can we make this amicable going forward? Like there is some things that Reddit said that I, I think were proven to be incorrect that I think it would be great if they said like even if it was just a matter of saying like we we were incorrect we were under false understanding of what happened it happens yada 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 let's talk but yeah just kind of like like a, like an olive branch to try to have both parties come to the table and just feel listened to again because just like kind of the stone wall they've put up over the last few weeks has kind of just soured things to an extent that I think like even if they were to say like we're cutting the price by 10 we're giving you a year um, it, w- it would make it hard to say like, yeah, but are you just giving it to the community or do you actually like want us around in any capacity soon? So it, it kind of feels like that bridge is burned now. 
I, do, I honestly don't, if, if I got an email today where they were like, hey, we'd love to hop on a call and like give you a little bit more time to tr- make this transition. And we'd like to say like, we could have handled this better. I'd honestly be open to talking. Uh, like I'm Canadian. I don't hold a lot of grudges. I don't think like, <laughs> I, I think it would have been like, I, I'd, I'd honestly still be fine talking. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think it's burned at all, but at this stage, I'm, I'm not sure they want to reconstruct from the little bit of charring that maybe did occur. So you're now the symbol of a much larger thing that's happening on Reddit, right? Like there was a post about Apollo shutting down and that spiraled into an ongoing series of subreddit blackouts. There are other asks in the mix now, and they're important to note, most of them around accessibility, right? which I think even Steve Hoffman has said, yep, Reddit's got to do a better job of this. And then there's a, a set of asks around not safe for work content, which it feels like they don't know that Apple has rules. And like Reddit can't just like put porn in the app in the way that maybe they're being asked for. But you're now like one part of a series of asks from a pretty disparate group of especially moderators on Reddit. Do you think that if they fix the API pricing situation and Apollo got back on track, that that would soothe the community at large? Um, I think it would go a long way, honestly, to, to at least making them feel heard. Because like in, in this whole saga, I don't think I've seen Reddit kind of offer to give an inch on like any of the things. <laughs> I would say Reddit's political skills at operating their community are uh, negative, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, it, and it's weird because like prior to this, like I, I almost always understood that Reddit as a company understood that they're, they're like a very community focused and they kind of didn't do the bullshit corporate speak. Um, and, and it was weird to kind of see this week where like they engage in a lot more of that than I've historically ever seen them do. Um, and and it just it went over about as well as I thought it would. <laughs> it's tricky. Yeah. Like I, I, I think giving like a, a gesture of goodwill that, hey, we're listening, we understand um, that there's some things we could have done better, I, I think honestly would go a long way because I think kind of just the general, um, while there's specific demands, uh, the almost general thing I hear is that like Reddit is like plugged its ears and refusing to listen to anybody but themselves. And, uh, and I think there's some very minor concessions that they can make to make people a lot happier. Like even if you take the not safe for work stuff, which I've almost committed to them saying like, that's never going to happen. But like, it's so strange insofar as like, there is like, A, it's still available through the API. It's just not available through third-party app API access. And beyond that, they already have things like quarantine subreddits for some of the, like, the more um, gruesome, shall we say, subreddits, where you have to kind of like go in through the official app or the official website and like kind of like rubber stamp it and say, I'm willing to see this. And only then is it available through the API. And they've already got mechanisms in place like that, where like I kind of understand why users are frustrated and saying, like, you've already got these mechanisms where users can like explicitly opt into this content through first-party tools and then access it through third-party tools. Why don't you employ such a system for... Uh, explicit content, for instance, and they, to my knowledge, haven't really given a clear answer there. And and it's kind oh, of like I can, wait, I can give the clear answer to that. Okay, okay, please. It's because they found a number of loopholes that let the app slide through app review, and they're terrified of changing anything, such that they might not get through app review anymore. I mean, that's that's the answer from every social network that I've ever heard is like, once you have ticked enough boxes and said enough secret words or, or magic incantations, you just never mess with it again. That, that's fair. And that's kind of been my experience with Apollo where like there was, I think a while back, like a bunch of Reddit apps were pulled for not safe for work stuff. And like the app store rules are are, are pretty clear in that, like um, if there is content accessible in that way, to my knowledge, like you, you can't expose it by default. The users have to explicitly opt in um, and they have to be able to opt out. Um, and, and insofar as like, that's the system I've had in Apollo and, and I've never touched it since either. Uh, but it's just one of those things where if they have that system working 
in the Reddit app and in some capacity, they have a system for that. I don't see why that same system couldn't apply to the API at large. You know what I mean? Like I'm totally for a system that guardrails all that content and makes sure that it's like incredibly difficult to get to and Apple doesn't get angry, but just extend that system that you've already built to the API, I guess. Yeah, this is what this is what I mean about the politics of it, right? Like you can send that message like, hey, we we don't even want to talk about this too much in case Phil Schiller is listening. But you just have to trust us. We're doing everything we can. And that's kind of the vibe from a lot of social networks. But you don't you need the chips to cash to say you got you just have to trust me on this. And it feels like you have more of those chips with the Reddit community. You have more trust from the Reddit community Mm. than Reddit itself. And I'm wondering if you see that playing out in this dynamic between you and the company right now. Maybe. And and I think if I do have those chips, it's just because I've been communicative through this whole process. It's very simple. And that's that's all I mean. Like there were so many talks on the phone with Reddit where I was just saying like, can you make this pricing make sense to me? Like how you arrived at it. And they just never would. And like, it's the same thing with the not safe for work stuff where they kept saying like, we're going to ask some people and see if we can get back to you on that. And, and And I still have not got back to on that. And I, and I think if they just communicated to the community that like, we think not safe for work content is like an ongoing, like really sensitive thing with, with app stores in general. And we want to make sure that like, we have absolute control over how that's accessed. And when we feel that third party apps, we don't trust them not to accidentally mess up and get us in trouble. And like, like that would be an unfortunate answer, but I think it would like, it would almost go over as being appreciated for the honesty. Yeah. If, rather than kind of just not saying anything at all and just saying it's gone, like stop whining. But it's like the not safe for work thing for me personally, like while I get, there's a lot of moderators of like not safe for work communities who are going to like be affected by this, that I get why it's a big deal for them. But like f- for me building an app, like if I lose that, it, it's not the end of the world. It's kind of, it's kind of everything else. Like that's one of those ones where I'm willing to drop if if need be. All right. So I think that we are in a absolute moment of change for what you might call the web 2.0 era. We are seeing these social web companies, most of them, save for Facebook, never figured out how to reliably make money and grow. That's Twitter. That's Reddit. That's all these companies. They're shutting down their APIs. They are pissing off their users. Everything else is turning into a TikTok clone. There's something happening here, right? And it seems like the open social networks could potentially have a moment. I don't know if they're going to or not, but you see the activity around Blue Sky, around Mastodon. We have pictures of the new one from Instagram that's coming out called P92 that should interoperate with Mastodon, we think. Have you thought about, I'm just going to take my users and go build a Reddit? that works with ActivityPub? Well, even more specifically now, this week, one of the things a lot of users have been saying is we're leaving Reddit, we're going to go to like Lemmy and Kbin are the two that I keep yep. hearing about. Lemmy's been around forever, right? I mean, it's like- yeah. Is is there a move that way that you think is real that you might want to be part of? It's tricky because like I, <laughs> to a certain extent, yeah, like that does sound really interesting, but it, it's like with Mastodon, for instance, I love it, but I've seen so many people, even in the tech community who totally have the means to make that move if they want to, who have just been too intimidated or just can't get off Twitter for some reason that like in the back of my head that I'm like, if these people who uh, are much smarter than me can't make that change, um, is that something that like, is this just like a a short term thing where 
um, we all had our time in the sun and, and it's going to go back to centralized services or like, it, it's hard for me to like, in, in so far as like build another thing that like, if it just evaporated again, it would be like a double breakup. Um, especially <laughs> where it's like, this has been so exhausting for the last few months that like the amount of work it would take to like port all the API endpoints over to like Lemmy or Kbin or something like that would be a gargantuan amount of work that like, I'm not sure like at the moment I have like the capacity for, and then for like just the, the complexity of making it work long term is just like it's it's a big question mark for me that like I'm at this stage I'm not sure I'm totally interested in pursuing but like I it's also one of those things where I completely wish it the best and and if something that was decentralized kind of became the norm I think that would definitely be a win for everybody you're just saying you, so, you don't have right, the energy to do it yourself I get it I feel that too uh, yeah that's yeah, a long way of that's real that. yeah yeah that's fair so as it stands right now you're set to turn off the API token and basically shut down Apollo June 30th. What, what percentage of you believes you will actually shut down on June 30th at this moment in time? Oh gosh, like 90%, 95. Really? So you're, you're fully prepared for this to happen. Oh, I I would say like, I've talked to like my reps at Apple to like get the process started. Like I, I, I like as much as I would love to say like, this has been a big bluff and I'm hoping Reddit will like, it, it was literally a matter of like, Reddit hasn't answered my emails like in a while. Like every public statement I've seen seems like the CEO is is quite angry over this. Like they don't seem to want to budge on the timeline at all. Like I don't see how I can make this work. And there's certain like things like when Tweetbot and Twitterific shut down, like there is there's processes you can do with Apple where you can say like a uh, you can opt out of your refund or something like that. And that's kind of something you want to get started before the apps actually shut down and everyone deletes it so they can never see that kind of offer. So like there's certain things I need to kind of get into motion that I can't just sit around forever hoping that Reddit will email me back or Reddit will listen to the community. And it's tricky <laughs> because like I, I've loved building Apollo and like even even at the $3,500 that headset costs, like I was kind of excited for the opportunity of like what could Reddit <laughs> on that thing look like? And I was really excited for that. So it, it's kind of like hard for me to, to say that. But at this stage, like it's just hard for me to like see a, a path forward where they're like reasonably willing to like meet me even a quarter of the way here. Um, it just seems like they're, they're so angry <laughs> for lack of a better term that I kind of just feel like it's better for me to be honest with myself rather than hold on to the hope to the last minute and then just completely fall apart. But I, but I, I really do that 10% of me really hopes that like, I'll be able to say like, I hopped on a call with Steve, like we talked it out. Like there was, um, some pleasantries exchanged about like misunderstandings. We're all good now. Like they're giving us more time to adopt the API and, we're sticking around. Like I would love that, but it's, it's one of those things where it's like, it's totally in, in Reddit's court. Um, and I'm happy to like talk whenever, but I just haven't been able to reach them, I guess. How much is that 10% of you hanging on sort of the size and scope of this revolt that has taken over Reddit the last couple of days? I mean, cause it, it really, it went from like a small thing that a few people were mad about to like effectively the size of reddit like everyone is aware that this is a thing now and you i keep thinking of like jennifer lawrence in the hunger games with like everybody holding up the mocking day except now <laughs> it's like the apollo logo do you have some hope that 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 might make change do you have hope that they'll kill all the other third-party apps except for you <laughs> well <laughs> just to take that to its natural conclusion <laughs> well it's funny we've like a lot of us third like to my knowledge pretty much all of the third party devs like when this started going down on april 18th like i reached out to them and was like why don't we put a group chat together and kind of just like talk and figure this out and like to my knowledge like the vast majority of them 
won't be able to survive this. Um, and for the ones that are kind of like testing the waters to see it, it's very much like this might be possible. I don't think it's going to work very well, but I'll maybe give it a shot, especially like with the timeline stuff being as it is like, I, I'll like, it's going to be tricky. So, so it's kind of like, I think at this point it, it's, it's not like, is everything going to die? It's like, is there a way to unkill everything? And, and honestly, a big part of me is because like, Honestly, I think Steve has historically been like a great CEO. Like he's he's not like he founded the company, so he's not coming in here as like a Wall Street business guy like trying to, you know, finagle the numbers. Like he deeply understands Reddit. And I think he's in tune with that community aspect where you can't just bullshit them and they'll they'll eat it all up. Like he, he knows Reddit. And and I'm hoping that like over the weekend and and seeing kind of the feedback here that he sees that and says like the community feels very passionately about this and there's a way to kind of heal this where uh, I can come out the good guy and just make everyone happy just by giving like a few concessions rather than having this kind of like explode further and get out of control. Like it, it's, it's, it, to me, it feels like there's a very clear, easy win for him and Reddit um, that they can make that a small part of me is like, it would almost be silly not to just because it would be so easy. But it, I'm also going to this blackout, like no expectations. Like if it happens, it happens. But I, I kind of don't want to set myself up for like hyping this up, being like, yeah, I'm going to have a job again when <laughs> that might not be the reality. Have you thought about what happens next? If, if Apollo goes away, you're going to go build a Twitter app. And just because you're a masochist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was thinking if the, the Verge had any junior journalist positions open or anything, like I, I might be able to get into that. I have a unique aspect on apple maybe um, <laughs> there you go. but 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 no i think uh, like last year when the dynamic island stuff came out on the iphone i built like a little almost like digital virtual pet app thing that i caked into apollo and then i ended up spinning off into a different app and that actually makes like a, a little bit of money on the side that's actually really nice so i think i'm gonna kind of take the summer and, and see now that i've got full time to spend on that if i can kind of give that any legs um, and see where that would be like in september or october but yeah other than that i think it's kind of just <laughs> relax a little bit i kind of haven't like had any like long-term time to relax in like nine years. Um, so it would be, I guess there's some upsides to losing your job. Look, my greatest regret in life is that I never took a year to be a bartender. I'm just putting it out there. Everyone else can live <laughs> my dream. I don't think I'm allowed to go be a bartender for a year anymore. Kids got to graduate college before I can do that. And then we'll both be bartenders together. But that's my advice. As a longtime Apollo user, I beg you not to follow that advice. <laughs> <laughs> what is Reddit but a bar without booze? <laughs> There you go. There you All go. right. We should let Christian go here. Christian, anything we should have asked you about? Any other rude things you want to say about Reddit employees? <laughs> no, no I, I honestly think like very highly of Reddit. Um, and, I, and, I, and I just really hope they listen. All right. Well, Christian, Neil, I thank you both. We got to take a quick break and then we will be back to talk Meta, Mark Zuckerberg, the Vision Pro, Twitter, and whether anyone is really scared of Apple's new headset. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Canva. They say Rome wasn't built in a day, but you know what you can get built in a day? Your creative deck. You can generate creative decks to use for all your important presentations with Canva. Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. You want a sales presentation for a tech company? Done. Create an employee onboarding plan? No problem. Just type it in and watch Canva work its magic. You'll have generated options in seconds. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver at work. So whatever you do at your job, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. 
It's AI for every department. It's easy to learn. It's even easier to use. And because it's built in Canva presentations, you can stay focused on the task at hand with no app switching. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Design for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're back. So as I'm sure you know, Apple launched its Vision Pro mixed reality headset last week. And when it did, everybody immediately started comparing it to one very specific competitor, the MetaQuest, which is kind of the default headset in the market right now. Meta even tried to beat the Vision Pro to the punch. It pre-announced the Quest 3 a few days before we got the Vision Pro. It's not coming out till this fall, but we heard about it way in advance. Then, not long after Apple's announcement, Meta held a huge all-hands meeting to talk about a lot of things, as it turns out, including the Vision Pro and a new Twitter competitor that the company is building. The Verge's Alex Heath heard that meeting and is here to talk about it. Alex Heath, hello. Hi. So, I want to talk about Meta. Two different things going on here in one meeting, but... Just to set the scene a little bit here, Apple's about to launch the Vision Pro. Meta launches the Quest 3 in an effort to like front run what Apple is about to launch. And then Apple launches the Vision Pro. And then Meta coincidentally, maybe not coincidentally, has an all hands meeting basically right after the launch in which they talked about it. Was this a coincidence, do we think? It was a coincidence, actually. It was a wonderful coincidence for me as a Meta reporter who also was on hand to try the Vision Pro, but a coincidence nonetheless. Okay. And so I would imagine there were a lot of people at Meta who had been very, very, very curious to see what Apple was going to launch. And as far as I can tell, or at least as far as you reported Mark Zuckerberg saying, not afraid. This does not feel like it's going to run them out of business. They're not out here. Like all the journaling apps are out here being like, oh, this is, we're probably screwed now because Apple launched a journaling app. Uh, I don't get the sense Meta feels that way about the Quest. Yeah, I mean, I think the context of when and how he was making these comments is important here because this was the first big company-wide meeting that Meta had done since before the pandemic started. They used to do these in uh, the area of the campus in Menlo Park called Hacker Square. It's kind of the original famous Facebook campus. And this was the chance for thousands of leaders across the company to come together in person for the first time in almost three years. And it was Zuckerberg's moment to really address everyone after after all the layoffs that Meta's done, the really rough couple of years it's had. And so you got to think in his mind, this is a rallying cry moment. This is a moment to get the troops excited about the company's vision and also, of course, talk about competition. And yeah, I would say you could hear it even in his voice as he starts to talk about the Quest 3, which was the headset that they pre-announced right before Apple. And as he's talking about the price, he starts to really get into the Apple comparison. You know, we, we made some major advances here. And a lot of those advances, you know what they do? They go towards making the device $500. <laughs> 
And you can hear in his voice that there's definitely a view inside Meta that their ability to price this thing at $500 is going to be a real competitive advantage, at least for the next couple of years. And I think they're right. You know, Zuckerberg talked about, you know, we've already sold tens of millions of quests. We're going to probably sell millions of the Quest 3. And meanwhile, Apple is rumored and I've heard to sell maybe only a million of the Vision Pros in its lifetime as a device. So for the next couple of years, the headset market is still Meta's. Now, we know that Apple has a history of coming in at the high end with new product categories and then iterating, bringing down the cost curve, releasing cheaper devices. They're already working on a cheaper vision device that I've heard about that probably won't come out for at least a couple of years, but they're going to be coming down in price over time. So, you know, ask Zuckerberg again in a few years how he feels. Well, that's the thing I'm kind of wondering is the other thing that Apple has a habit of doing is launching a product and then its primary competitor says something to the effect of, we're not scared. This is nothing. You, BlackBerry said it. Nokia said it. Bill Gates said it. Like, this is a thing that Apple keeps doing. I mean, Steve Ballmer, David, that's the most classic. Like, Absolutely. I think a, after I reported on these comments that Zuckerberg made about the Vision Pro saying basically, you know, we're going to be OK, everyone was sharing those clips of Steve Ballmer laughing at the introduction of the iPhone all those years ago and, and the price of the thing. That's exactly right. So, I, And I think there, there's kind of two genres of that, right? There's the one that's the kind of we're not scared rally the troops thing, even though you are scared. And then there's the other thing where you genuinely aren't scared. And historically speaking, those have a tendency of not working out super well for the people who don't think they need to be scared. Which do you think is true of Mark Zuckerberg right now? Was that a thing to kind of, you know, be good for morale within Meta? Or is he actually not worried about what the Vision Pro is at this moment? I think it's too early for them to tell. Okay. No one at Meta has tried the thing. You and I are only one of the lucky few that true. have actually. And Zuckerberg made a note about that. You know, he hasn't obviously tried it. I think where he felt some solace, and I'm not quite sure I agree with this interpretation, but where he felt, you know, okay was that Apple is really positioning this device as a general purpose computing personal device. It's not really something that they're seeing, at least initially, as a gaming platform or a social platform. If you noticed in their keynote that you and I were there for at Apple Park or in their promotional materials for the Vision Pro, pretty much everyone is by themselves wearing the thing, right? Staring into space with their eyes peering through, which I think was actually a little bit bizarre on Apple's part, but that's a whole nother tangent. And Meta, meanwhile, is the social media company. And whether they're doing it right or not, uh, I would say that Horizon, their 3D social world experiment for the Quest has been a utter disaster, and they know this so far. But they're trying to position it as a social, you know, Zuckerberg has talked to me and others about really the magic of this technology is the feeling of presence, feeling like you're with someone physically, even when you're not. And, you know, I will say like on quest past quest demos I've done with him and other execs, like even as the legless, you know, early Sims looking avatars that they have, it's true that like this medium does give you that sense of presence. And Apple's going at that as well. They're just they're doing it in a slightly different way, in a way that's a little more broad. And I think Apple is going to do its classic thing where it's going to let developers come up with the killer use cases here. And Meta is way farther ahead on that track. They've already got dozens of premium game titles for the Quest. They've got a whole fitness category with supernatural and social experiences as well. So, And beyond all that, I think... <laughs> If Apple had come out with, say, a $1,000 vision device that wasn't a pro device, that was a mass market 
direct Quest competitor that was maybe just like double the price, I think you would have a very, very different tone uh, from Zuckerberg and, and Meta. Yeah, that's when we would have gotten Mark promising everyone that he's not scared, for sure. Like, not, I'm definitely not scared. Not at all. Nothing to be scared about. Everything's <laughs> totally fine. It's not a problem. That would have yeah. been the tone if this thing had been $1,000. But I do think, like, to your point, there were two things that he said that you reported on that really jumped out to me. One was that the thing he took away from the Vision Pro announcement was that Apple hasn't come up with magical solutions to the things that make this really hard, which I thought was really interesting and really true, because the thing that Apple did was say, we're going to make all of this really good, and it is going to cost $3,500. And the sort of vibe coming from Zuckerberg in that moment is like, yeah, sure, we can make a good one of these too. It would also cost $3,500. And so for him to say, you know, they, they have not found a magical solution to the problems that we're all trying to solve in this space, I thought was really interesting. And then the other piece of it is is exactly what you're saying, and it's the social thing. And I think there's a whole other podcast we should probably do at some point about how Apple talked about this, but it is so bizarre to me that Apple came out and was like, we don't want to sell you a device that goes into the metaverse where you put on a headset and disappear from the real world and it's totally anti-social thing. And then they just showed people sitting on couches alone. And then Meta comes out and is like, we don't want you sitting on couches alone. We just want to strap you into a headset through which you totally disappear from the real world and go somewhere else. And it's like both of these companies are sort of saying the same dig at each other from completely opposite directions. And I kind of think they're both right. And I just cannot wrap my head around this. And this goes back to, I guess, like you were saying this all last week when we were in Cupertino is like these companies are trying to do the same thing. They're just coming at it from totally different directions. They are. And like, you know, as you know, we've gotten to experience the Vision Pro, you and I, most people haven't. And yeah, you're right. Apple's marketing materials position it as this thing. And they talk about the spatial awareness and letting people come in and out of the frame. And that's a really cool experience. You know, we both saw that and experienced it, uh, the pass through. The Quest 3 is going to have full color pass through as well. And it's going to have a heavy emphasis on mixed reality. So not full immersion, more so than any device Meta has done to date. Uh, It's not going to have as high quality of pass through as Apple because it's not $3,500. You can see the contrast in how Apple approached the product. And that was what Zuckerberg was talking about, where they clearly were going, we want to achieve a level of visual fidelity, richness, latency, that feels as close to the real world as possible. And, you know, in my demo of the Pro, I got that, right? There were no pixelations on text on Safari, whether it was way up close to my face or way on the corner of the room, right? The Quest is different, right? You're not going to be, like, reading a long article in the Quest. It's not a good experience because the graphics aren't that good. So Apple guided towards this experience, and it turns out that in the year 2023, if you want to have that experience, it's cost $3,500 with Apple margins. So Meta, on the other hand, is going, how much technology can we pack into a lightweight, you know, the Quest 3 is going to be 40% slimmer than the Quest 2. How much technology can we pack into a headset that we can sell for as cheap as possible? And this is ultimately where all this goes, is Apple is a hardware company where they make money by selling devices primarily, at least for now, that's going to change over time. Meta is an advertising company, and they see seeding the world with these devices as part of that long-term strategy to eventually just make money the way they always do through software, through services, through advertising. You know, can you imagine like the Facebook ad system, but over your reality, right? Which right. is like as dystopian as you want to think of it as, right? But that's that's where they're going. So that's where they ultimately are approaching this differently. And what I think was giving Zuckerberg a little bit of that confidence that you hear from the meeting that I listened to. 
But again, like talk to me and him again in three years, and it's going to be potentially a very different uh, situation. I will say, and this is something I just noticed being at Cupertino and then listening and watching the the meta meeting the week after, is there's a real uh, (laughs) palpable difference in conviction from Zuckerberg about this technology Mm. and about the importance of it to his company's future versus Apple. I think for Apple, it's going to be perfectly fine if the Vision Pro and that entire category just doesn't work out. I think Tim Cook wants it to be his legacy, but I'm not sure he's really sold on the device as it exists today. The rumors at Cupertino were were that he just isn't a big fan of the device, frankly, and that he's waiting to just see what happens with the category. And that he is really looking ahead to AR glasses, which is that lightweight everyday pair of, you know, wearable computing you put on your face that you can take out with you. That's potentially a much bigger market. And, uh, that's exactly what Mark Zuckerberg thinks as well. So they're yeah. both going at that direction, but like you said, in very different ways. Yeah, it's not nothing that we didn't see a single Apple executive wearing a Vision Pro. And you talked about this in Command Line, your newsletter, which everybody should go subscribe to. And when Meta announced the Quest 3, it was along with several pictures and video of Mark Zuckerberg wearing a Quest 3. Like, that's not nothing. It's not nothing, but also like that may be not a good marketing decision based on how you feel about Mark Zuckerberg. Like, I'm not going to say that they're making the right call there necessarily. I mean, he's wearing like a tactical vest and a Quest 3. Like, it's yeah. not the greatest eh, look of all it's time. It's not the greatest look, but... <laughs> but at least know. he believes in his product. <laughs> yeah, you've got the CEO being very excited. And it's just a very rich tech business rivalry story because the reason he's so passionate about this is really because of Apple and because of how Apple has had its thumb over Facebook during the mobile era with things like app tracking transparency, all these app store sagas that they've had with Facebook. You know, it's it's well known at this point that Apple and Facebook are kind of ideological opposites. And that's been a real uh, point of uh, pain, I would say, for Zuckerberg and Facebook over the last decade plus. And what really drove a lot of this work he's doing on headsets and the metaverse and wanting to shift to, you know, mixed reality computing is let's try to come up with the next computing paradigm that may eventually supplant mobile and be a leader in that category and have our own platform so that we're not beholden to Apple this time again. You know, I I think back to when I, I interviewed Meta CTO Andrew Bosworth probably in 2018, 2019. And he told me something that has stuck with me about all this Apple stuff where he said, we don't know that if whenever Apple eventually comes out with a headset, if they would even let us on it. Hmm. So we have to create the hardware to give us space for this next medium. So they were already looking ahead to this moment all those years ago and thinking about this. And I really do think that animates a lot of the tension between the two companies today. Yeah, that's super interesting. And speaking of companies with whom Meta has a lot of tension, let's talk about Twitter and Threads, which is the other thing that you learned from this meeting, where Chris Cox, who runs product at Meta, told the audience a lot more about this Twitter competitor that we've been hearing about for a while. Uh, Walk me through it. What did we learn? Yeah, so there's been reporting on this from our friend Casey Newton and others kind of leading up to this that Meta has been quietly building some kind of social media app that's going to directly compete with Twitter. It's going to be text-based. Interestingly, be based off of Instagram. So you'll be able to bring your Instagram network with you to the new app on day one. And I would say probably most interestingly, it's going to integrate with ActivityPub, which as we've talked about on The Vergecast and on The Verge a bunch, and you wrote that great feature about, David, is this decentralized social media protocol that powers Mastodon and a bunch of other apps. Um, Think of it like 
email for social media where you can take your data with you between different email apps. And so during this big meta all hands, it was the first time that leadership had acknowledged that this new product was coming to employees and really gave the high level pitch for it. Chris Cox, the head of product for all of the social media apps at Meta, framed it directly as the company's answer to Twitter is what he called it and had this little line kind of throwing shade at Elon Musk and how he's handled Twitter that got a pretty good reaction from the audience. Based on a lot of research we've been doing from creators and public figures who are interested in having a platform that is sanely run, that they believe that they can trust and rely upon distribution, safety, ease of use, reliability, and a way of paying attention to what they care about and making sure they have a stable place to build and grow their audience. So here's my question about this. Why on earth would Meta do this? Because there have been people saying Meta should just eat Twitter alive for forever. And Twitter has been a mess for forever. Twitter has never made any money ever. And we're still in this position where Twitter is a disaster of a platform and has been for a very long time. Everything Meta makes is more popular than Twitter. Twitter is just, it's just a hellhole. Like, why on earth would Meta decide this is the moment when Twitter is like collapsing and the world is looking for something else? This is the time they want to get into this. And not only that, they want to integrate with ActivityPub, which is this new thing that everybody thinks is going to replace it, but is also presumably going to be much harder to really scale and really monetize because it is decentralized. I just don't understand if I'm Chris Cox, why this is worth spending time on right now. It's a good question. Before I answer it, did you all see Zuckerberg talk about this on Lex Friedman last week? No. Zuckerberg was interviewed by Lex Friedman recently and was asked about this. And I thought his answer was pretty illuminating. You know, I've always thought that sort of a text-based kind of information utility is just a really important thing to society. I, I always thought that, you know, Twitter should have a billion people using it. And that is something Instagram and Facebook have never really competed with. It brings up its own challenges, as we've seen yeah. from Twitter over the years. But that is something like the thing where cable news is basically just anchors reading tweets. I can see why, if I'm Mark Zuckerberg, I would have been jealous of that for a long time. Yeah. You know, Facebook has had this really long, interesting, I don't know what the right word is, um, fascination with trying to <laughs> copy Twitter. And it's never worked. So I'm not sure it's going to work this time. Meta also has a pretty disastrous track record of launching standalone apps on its own. The app name that there is the current working name for this new Twitter competitor is called Threads, which was another standalone Instagram app that was launched, I don't even know when, semi-recently, at least within the last five years, and was shut down because no one used it. So it's kind of poetic in that way. Next thing, it'll be IGTV again, competing with YouTube. Like, we're just <laughs> going to recycle all of these old ideas. Yeah. I mean, I've been covering Facebook long enough to remember when they changed the news feed, gosh, probably in 2012 era around then, to focus more on real-time updates and public figures instead of your friends and family. And that was because... Mark Zuckerberg was seeing the rise of Twitter. Twitter was in the process of going public and people thought, wow, maybe this is the next billion plus user platform to rival Facebook. And so Facebook changed the feed to focus more on, on news. Fast forward to today and Facebook is actively trying to downrank and de-emphasize news and public content in the feed. So it is an interesting time to be doing this. And I would say that everyone in the social media industry is just looking at Elon's handling of Twitter and going, 
can we somehow slide in here? Is there an opening? And, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, if nothing, is very competitive and wants to take opportunistic shots. And I think that's really all they see this as. This uh, They're calling it Project 92 internally, which is the year that the first text message was sent. And it's kind of uh, bold, I, I think, for them to even try this right now, just because, you know, I don't know if, like, people want the Twitter experience anymore. It seems like... There's a lot of companies trying. None have really taken off. Um, and then on the decentralized side, ActivityPub is growing, but it's still not mainstream. Blue Sky, which uh, you know I'm also interested in, which is a rival to ActivityPub, is even smaller. So on day one, Meta coming in here will make ActivityPub at least 10x bigger. They'll be the biggest server on ActivityPub immediately. What that does for the rest of the ecosystem is is interesting. I think it's important to explain maybe why they're even thinking about this app working with ActivityPub. If you look at what happened with Twitter, all of a sudden, I think a bunch of power users of Twitter, myself included, went, oh, wow, like this can just be taken away. Like the company can just be bought and either shut down or Elon can start banning people or banning links, banning your ability to monetize. It started to feel really fragile. And the promise of ActivityPub is that even if one server on the network goes down, you can take your entire following graph, your account information with you to another server. So if you're a public figure, if you're, you know, I reported and they said in the meeting they're talking to Oprah, big celebrities like that to come onto this app on day one. I would imagine that part of a good pitch is, look, even if we decide you know, meta the company that we're not going to support this app, you know, five years from now, for whatever reason, you're at least going to still have all that, you know, account and follower information and posting that you've done built on ActivityPub. And you could take it to Mastodon, you could take it to another app, it's not locked into our ecosystem. Right. In a sense, it's actually like a really confident swing from Instagram, because they're saying, the bet then is that just by virtue of having a big network, lots of people already use it, and they have really good monetization tools that they can be like, yeah, we're an open platform. We're still going to win because we have all of these other tools around it that we can offer. And even as I'm saying this, that's like kind of a really compelling pitch. It might work. Yeah. And, you know, even outside of Activity Pub, I've always found it fascinating that like the largest social media company in the world still needs to go to Twitter to like announce things, right? You know, Zuckerberg famously doesn't tweet from his at Finked account anymore, though I know he lurks on there. But you've got other top meta executives posting there all the time, sharing product announcements, the kinds of things that we come to expect on Twitter. I think that kind of annoys them, and it has for a long time, (laughs) that people don't come to their properties for those kinds of updates. And this is, again, the largest social media company in the world by a wide margin. So I have to imagine internally there's also just this feeling of, man, it's probably going to feel great to finally just have a bit of this energy that we've never been able to capture with Twitter. They're definitely going to try. You know, whether it works, I don't know. I think using Instagram is actually really smart because if you think about the kinds of celebrities and uh, social graphs on Instagram, and when I say social graph, I just mean relationships between who is following who, it actually probably mirrors Twitter more than you would think. And it's definitely Meta's closest Twitter-like social graph. So I think it's smart for them to use that instead of you know WhatsApp or a whole new account system for this. So they're going to have a lot of advantages going into this, and it's really just going to be on them to execute and build something that, like Cox said in the meeting, is, quote, sanely run. Totally. Well, it seems like this is happening fast, so we're, we're going to have to keep talking about this because I also there's a whole like Fediverse response to this that's been really interesting. We're going to have to come back to all of that. For now, we need to take a break, and then we're going to talk about Apple's new computers and whether a 15-inch MacBook Air 
is the magical laptop we've been hoping for. Thank you, Alex. Appreciate it as always. Thank you. Last week, Kanye West accused one of the biggest Twitch streamers of being an industry plant. It's an idea that comes up so often on platforms like TikTok and elsewhere. You see people who have blown up seemingly overnight. And the question is, who's behind them, right? That's what everyone wants to know. Tipping the scales and pulling the lever to make them seemingly the next it thing on the internet. This week on Power User, is it even possible to create an industry plant on the internet? And if so, how? Eurovision is here. This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden. But this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess as to what people are mad about. Yes, correct. It's that. Organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there is no way... That, that Israel should be able to participate in Europe. Pro-Palestinian protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched On Pop joins us this week on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out of this situation. Welcome back. Last week, in addition to the Vision Pro and all that new software at WWDC, Apple also announced a couple of new Macs, a 15-inch MacBook Air, a new Mac Studio, and a new Mac Pro. The Verge's Monica Chin spent the past few days reviewing the MacBook Air and I think just got the Studio and the Pro in office to test them out. So we should get into all of them. Let's get her in here to talk about it. Hey, Monica. Hello, hello. How is it? I feel like every once in a while, a few times a year, you're thrust into what I like to call like pure MacBook hell. Uh, Are you deep in it now? How does it feel? Yeah, this is one of those things where like in the morning in our Slack, everyone posts like a long list of what they're working on. I just write Apple for two weeks straight (laughs) and no one questions me. It's kind of wonderful. That's about right. So there are three computers coming out. One you've tested, two you're about to test. I want to talk about all of that. But let's start with the the 15-inch Air, which is the one you've had a chance to review so far. The wrap on this when it came out was, it is a MacBook Air. It is all the things you think about a MacBook Air. It's just bigger now. Is that true? Like, is that kind of how it came out in the review also? That is entirely correct. It is a 13-inch MacBook Air, but it is now 15 inches. Okay. It is really remarkably similar. The experience using it is very, very similar, but the screen is a lot bigger. Okay, so we've been debating on this show now for, what, like 10 days, why Apple took so long to launch this thing. But I haven't asked you, and I'm curious, as someone who pays a lot of attention to this space, this is the kind of thing Apple could have done many years ago. It's not like there is some earth-shattering new idea about 15-inch laptops in here. Where has this thing been? Wait a minute, guys. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I think there are kind of two things, and of course I can only really speculate. Um, One is that... In the past several quarters, PC shipments have been very slow. It's been a much better story for Apple than it has for pretty much every other PC manufacturer that we cover here. But Apple has still seen a large decline in its sales and its shipments since, like, the golden age. And I hate to call it that, but for these companies, it kind of was in 2020 and early 2021 when everyone was buying this stuff. So a lot of companies, companies in the PC space writ large have sort of been tasked with how do we convince people to keep buying stuff 
when the stuff they bought in 2020 is still like not particularly old, like it's not falling apart yet. How do we keep this market exciting? And companies have tried various different things. Like we've had companies that are trying to do fancy AI stuff. We've had like HP's doing this whole customer service thing and calling itself a solutions provider now. And I would not be surprised if this was like, a you know, Apple's trying to figure out how is it going to reach new audiences and how is it going to release something that is going to create a news cycle around the products that it's putting out right now. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing because I think one of the things you did in your review was basically make a list of all the weird things PC manufacturers are doing to try to get people to buy laptops. <laughs> Some pretty weird stuff out there. Oh, my God, it's insane. And like seeing it all listed in a row is pretty wild. Like all the new screens they're trying and they're like, what if we put the keyboard in a new place? And it's like, don't do that. Like, it's fine. We figured this out a long time ago. Yeah, we've got invisible touchpads out there. <laughs> yeah. We got dual screens. We got all this stuff. So that's... um. I, I sort of made this clear in the review, but I personally, I'm glad that, you know, they, they released their VR headset that was, you know, big and flashy and, you know, no one's going to buy. You guys have talked about that to death. I'm glad they released this as well, because this is a thing that people actually want and have been asking for and that they a need that they weren't meeting before. So I hope that this was partially response to to that need. The other thing and in terms of like why it took so long, I do think this is a more niche product than the 13 inch MacBook Air. Um, I think there are probably, at the moment, in the current market, fewer people who want something like this than who want something like a 13-inch MacBook Air. And so I think it you know, it kind of makes sense that they did this one last. I think it's probably a smaller market, but I, I that doesn't mean there aren't tons of people who want it. I think there very well might be. Okay. Yeah, so let's, let's talk about kind of the pros and cons of 15 versus 13. Because I if I'm just thinking yeah. about it off the top of my head, it would seem to me that the two best reasons to buy a 15-inch laptop over a 13-inch laptop, if in fact they are essentially identical otherwise, (laughs) is just more screen size, right? Like I can just do more stuff on the screen and battery life. That because the thing is bigger, there's more space to put battery. Those strike me as like the two most obvious things. Did those both pan out in your review? Like how much difference is two inches of screen in actual life? So the screen is definitely, is the major reason. Okay. The screen is huge. I've been sort of going back and forth between this and, like, the 13-inch M1 MacBook Pro that work gave me uh, for the past uh, couple days. And, like, after having used this 15-incher over the past uh, weekend or so writing the review, I really did get used to it, you know, being able to just have two tabs open and, like, zoom out maybe once or, like, not at all and just be able to see everything and, like, not have to scroll that much and, like really have when i when i write reviews i tend to have like a ton of things open cuz i have like my spec sheet i have the the product purchase page i have like our hands on i have like my draft and then i have like my other draft where the stuff i cut goes like i have a ton of stuff i really like to be able to see as much of it as i can and get between it all really fast and a lot of the stuff i'm reading is like really long and requires a lot of scrolling to get to where i'm going um it was just a lot less work to do that kind of thing on this like gigantic screen. And I really got used to being able to have two, even three things over at a time that I could just really quickly reference and to sort of being able to see like my entire draft without having to scroll. And then when I went back to the 13 inch pro, like yesterday morning, um, I was like, Oh, this sucks. <laughs> like I, had to, I was like, Oh my goodness. I have to zoom out like seven times to be able to see like the whole verge homepage when it's, when it's in snap layout. Oh, this is the worst. Yeah. Two full sized windows 
or very close to it sounds pretty nice. Like I, I always think about, I've been using a 13 inch laptop basically exclusively for many years. I've kind of forgotten what it's like to have a 15 inch, but then I sit down next to Neelai who has like a 16 inch pro and it is like the biggest roomiest looking thing. And I don't have to put Google docs down to 70% just to see the whole text column. Like two inches does, I think make a big difference. Yeah. It's massive. And for multimedia as well, you really get, it feels more immersive to me. And that might not be the case for everyone, but like when I'm watching like my YouTube videos or whatever I watch at night, like I'm just like, oh, I can really see like details that I wouldn't necessarily see watching on a 13. Totally. So it it, it does, I think it's significantly, it's a lot more room. It feels like a lot more room. Um, if you're someone who wants like as large of a screen as possible on a MacBook, but you don't want to pay for the 16 like this will level up your experience. Uh, In terms of battery life, I do get more out of this than I get out of the 13-inch Air. It was not like a massive difference, and I would say the testing I have right now is kind of in the margin of error, so it does have a bigger battery. It has a bigger screen that it's powering as well. I would not buy the larger one just for the battery life over the 13-inch Air or the 13-inch Pro at this point. But I, I did get, like, a little bit more. They What I would say to that, though, also, is they all just have such long battery life. I don't know that. I think for a lot of people, it's probably going to be a diminishing returns situation. Yeah, that's that's very fair. So, and actually, we were debating this on the show. I'm curious what your, your take is. Would you make trades in other ways? Like, if it made the laptop a little heavier or a smidge slower or whatever, in exchange for, like, six more hours of battery life, would that would that mean something to you? Or have we kind of hit that plateau where it's like, it lasts all day, you really don't have to think about it, that's good enough? So at a certain point, I think that, you know, that's totally subjective, and it's, like, what you like. I'm firmly in the good enough category, but, like, Neil, I felt very strongly that, like, give that man three days of battery life and he's a happy man. Yeah, like, I, I mean, if you look at, if you're asking about, like, my personal preferences, yeah. like, if you look at what I I use I use 13s in my personal life and that's because for me there's a point at which the battery life is fine it's probably around like 12 13 hours and after that like portability is super super important so like I don't own a 16 inch MacBook Pro even though that is like some of the longest battery life that I get um, because that's just it's too expensive and also it's just it's really really heavy um, yeah. and I I like to carry things around with one hand and I like also I have to carry like seven laptops around at any given time so I need <laughs> the lighter the the lighter the better for me and my back but you know I think if you you know some people want a, a super super light thing that's like a Windows laptop that has only like six hours of battery life and more power to you but that's that's not enough for me I need to not have to think about my outlets that much. Yeah, I buy that. Okay, so were there any other sneaky upsides to upgrading from 13 to 15? Yeah, the speakers are fantastic. Oh, interesting. They're really, really good. The bass is like very, like, you know, I listen to the audio on this stuff all the time. The bass is usually like inaudible or super tinny. This bass is really good. Um, When I, I mentioned this in the review, but when I first started playing like my Apple music on this. I like thought it was coming out of a speaker. I was like, where, where is connected to? It's really good. It has a nice surround quality. I think in terms of multimedia consumption, this is like probably one of the best devices you can get. Okay. Like the combination of the giant screen and like the really immersive speakers. Like I can't think of a better TV watching experience that I've had on a device if that's what you're looking for. Nice. So and the interesting thing about that is it seems like what Apple did is instead of just shoving all the battery possible into the bigger chassis, which is what a lot of manufacturers would do, they actually use some of that space to stick more speakers in. And I think to your point about diminishing returns, I think like good audio is worth 
that space to me more than like another couple hours of battery life. So that that makes me very happy. Yeah. And also like everyone else needs to figure this out. I feel like the fact that no PC manufacturers are out here pushing as hard as Apple on making the thing sound good so I don't have to plug in headphones all the time is like, please, everybody else get on board. Yeah, it is definitely the best speaker experience I've had from this category this year. It's really I that was a treat. I was not even really setting out to test that functionality, but um, that is that is worth mentioning. For yeah, sure. that's awesome. Um, so, all right. So downsides. The downside, I would assume, is just that it's bigger, like like both bigger. physically bigger and heavier <laughs> and presumably thicker. And like how much bigger are we really talking about here in like day to day use? So it's very thin. So I wouldn't worry about like you're suddenly not be able to fit it in your briefcase when you can okay. fit a 13 in your briefcase. It is like it is very noticeably heavier. And I know like people have been coming at me for this. I understand. I invite you to come at me. I, I deserve it to an extent. I just I, I this is I want to be clear. This is not me complaining about like, oh, it's too heavy for me. This is me <laughs> making sure I want people to be aware if they've never used a 15 incher before that they are heavier than 13 inches. And if you are buying this expecting that because it has the word air in its title that it's going to be like two pounds. It is not nearly as it is more than half a pound lighter than 13 incher. I meant I made this comparison in the review, but it is much closer to the weight of the Zephyrus G14 gaming laptop than it is to the 13 inch MacBook Air. Oh, wow. Okay. And again, in the 15 inch category, it is very light, though it is not the lightest 15 inch laptop you can buy, but it is it is light for the category. But I want to make sure people know that if you're if this is sort of your first venture into 15 inch into 15 inch laptops like these things, these are heavier, heavier devices than you will be used to. Yeah. And the reason I think that's worth, you know, noting is that the air like a big part of the air's um, value in the past has been it's really, really light. And that's what I one of my favorite things about the 13 inch air is that 13.6 inch air is that carrying it around really feels like you're carrying nothing. And that is not the case with 15 inch air. It's heavier. You feel it. Like I had to walk around with it in a tote bag for a while. That was not my favorite thing to thing to carry in a tote bag. It is not quite the same experience. Again, if you've used fifteen inches all the time, this might feel light to you. But if if it's your first fifteen incher, just be prepared. It's heavier. It's over three pounds. The thing that's very exciting to me about this is that trade off feels like something that is going to be very obvious and people are going to kind of be able to self-select into, right? In the way that like, if I want to decide which iPad to buy, it is immensely complicated. And I ha- we have to ask a thousand follow-up questions before we can figure out what iPad you should have. <laughs> if you want to buy a MacBook Air, it's like, okay, do you want the lighter, slightly smaller one? Or do you want the one with more screen that's slightly bigger and slightly heavier? Like, that's it. That's the yeah. trade. That's exactly how this should work, right? There's like a little more, you know, the 15-inch Air like performed a little bit better in our benchmark testing okay. than the 13-inch Air did. Um, there's more cooling. It did not perform quite as well in most cases, in most synthetic cases at least, as the 13-inch Pro, which has a fan, did. So it kind of sat squarely in the middle between those two. I also think like people who are shopping for the Air like probably the synthetic benchmark performance like is not as relevant to you all sure like i you know having used all these for like as i mentioned before like lots of internet things and like typing in my draft while referencing a spec sheet like there is not a noticeable difference between any of these when doing that they are all fast it is all fine yeah i like to think of myself as like the upper tier of the average user like i don't have any 
apps I use day to day that are like outside of the realm of being a regular person. I just tend to have more tabs open than most. And for me, still, the M1 Air is like above what I need performance wise. Yeah, like I have an M1 Pro at my desk that has like a hundred like YouTube videos minimized right now because like I'm just the kind of person when I want to watch a YouTube video, I minimize it because I'm organized like that and it. (laughs) It works totally fine. I do not need an M2 for that. But if you're someone who thinks you might want to do, like, Lightroom on this or something, but not enough that you want to go up to the Pro, like, that's a difference that's worth potentially looking into. Right. So, and this is what I was getting to with the comparison thing, actually, because I think the the Air comparison is mostly pretty straightforward for people. But the question of, do I want a 15-inch Air or, let's say, a 16-inch Pro probably sorts itself just because it's still a gigantic price difference and you either want to pay for more or you don't. But it seems to me now that the biggest single difference in terms of like what most people will actually experience between these two laptops is the ports, right? And the Air still has the like woefully tiny number of ports that you get on the 13-inch Air. And the Pro has, at this point, a pretty good complement of ports, right? Like, is that kind of the main difference between the two at this point? I mean, the Pro performs, uh, it has significantly better uh, processor in sure, it. So that's sure. what I would say is the main difference. Yeah. In addition to the the many hundreds of dollar price increase. But again, I think for most people looking to buy these things, they're both still going to be more performant than most people need. So again, like if you know you need what the Pro is, great. It does matter when you're if you're someone who's thinking about the Pro versus the Air. I'm assuming that you are doing some kind of photo stuff or you're coding that's or fair. you're Yeah doing Premiere. And in that case, generally, we would not recommend the Air if you're doing that kind of stuff, like, regularly. Like, we have people in our office who, who like, use Lightroom and do a lot of raw photo stuff, and they generally have gone for the Pro and have said that the the Air is not really adequate for what they're doing. So that is, that is the main differentiator, is the M1 Pro. And if you look at the benchmark comparisons of, like, our M2 chip, like, I'm talking about, like, I'm comparing all these M2 machines to each other. If you look at this M2 Air model and you compare those benchmarks to the benchmark scores, um, especially on graphics stuff, that the M2 Pro and M2 Max are getting, it's not even close. Like, they are so far apart from each other. So that is the main differentiator. But I do think that similarly to how I – the experience I had on this, the positives of it are similar to the positives of 13-inch Air. I think many of my complaints are still there. The biggest one is the port selection. I know lots of people are totally fine with having two USB-C. I think having two USB-C, especially on the same side, is not my favorite thing. And I think I had hoped that maybe this bigger chassis would allow for at least some on the right side, too, because that does offer you a lot of flex. I mean, the the headphone jacks over there, but in terms of like where you can charge it or where you can plug peripherals in, I think it offers a lot more flexibility when you have ports on both sides. For example, my desk... Because of the way it's positioned relative to the power outlet, it's going to be very difficult to plug my monitor in on the left side. And that Mm. is going to – I'm going to have to do some reconfiguring. I don't love that. That is like my own personal thing to work through. But (laughs) I would love (laughs) – you know, that is a downside for me when I think about would I buy this. I don't think this port selection would be adequate for me at least in terms of having them all on the left side. And I think they're fine for some people, but I think it limits the audience somewhat um, and continues to. On the other hand – this is the port selection Apple put on the previous Air. It seems like they have determined, based on the sales that that did, that it attracted enough people as is. So I kind of, I you know, I admire that they seem to have figured out what they want the Air to be, and they aren't, you know, trying to throw stuff at the wall to make it reach more and more people. And that's something you do see lots of companies do. So true. Yeah. 
thumbs up for uh, just that. Like, I guess. Just maybe one more port, Apple. Just just one, one on the right one side. One on the right <laughs> side. That's all I like. My my wife has a Galaxy Chromebook, and just the fact that you can plug a power cable into either side of that thing is such a it's such a lovely little like quality of life improvement. People make fun of me for this all the time. Like there are always people in my comment section, like, oh, like why you really need ports on both sides of blah blah. It's like I I don't think you understand like the freedom that you suddenly feel, the weight that is lifted off your shoulders when you can plug a charger into either, or a monitor into either side. It really, it opens up your world in a way that is difficult to describe if you've been using MacBooks your whole life. You don't have to do that thing where you like, turn it 20 degrees just to be able to get the thing to connect from the wall. It's, yeah, no, it it is literally life-changing in like the stupidest way. When I got my new M1 MacBook, Pro, I have to say this now. Um, I had like I had to get another cord for my T because the one that I had wasn't long enough to we- reach all the way around to the left side. Like it's you know that kind of thing does matter. It's difficult to explain if you're really used to having all your ports on one side or the other, but I think it makes a difference in in your experience. Yeah, no, I'm 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 totally with you. So compare this 15 inch Air to the Windows stuff that's out there right now, and I feel like we've hit a place where to you know use a pun that i hate as a pun it's all kind of apples and oranges right like apple seems to have just started playing its own game in laptops but there are a lot of 15 inch windows laptops out there that are kind of right around in this price range is there anything in the windows world that stands up to what apple's trying to do here Uh, in terms of the combination of performance and battery life that this offers i have not seen anything the 15 inch lightweight space is already somewhat niche you know there are some big there are some big models, um, and there are some that are lighter than this. But generally, I think there's sort of a stereotype right now that the 15-incher is the big, powerful one, and the 13-incher is, like, the weaker one for Interesting. Sure. Netflixing. And if you look at, obviously, the 15-inch category itself is a huge category, but if you look at where a lot of that revenue is coming from for PC manufacturers, a lot of it is gaming laptops and the lightweight, sort of ultra-portable, quote-unquote, 15-inch category is a little bit more of a, I think seen as a little bit a little bit more of a niche thing right now. You have models like the LG Gram 15, the Galaxy Book Pro has a couple 15-inch models here and there. And they're, you know, they're fun to use. I like using all of them. But in terms of the the battery life that this gets, and compared with the the performance that we've seen on these synthetic benchmarks, this M2 chip just, like, offers you a lot more. And I think if you're if you're someone who's just like, oh, I just want a, fi- a lightweight 15-inch laptop and 3.3 pounds is my ideal weight point, like this would be the one I would suggest to you for the moment. Fair enough. All right, real quick before I let you go, the other two Macs are the new Studio and the new Pro. You haven't tested them yet, but I'm super curious. Both of these, the Studio in particular, is just like a straight-up chip upgrade, right? Like, the, has anything else about that thing changed? And the Pro is basically just the studio with some extra ports. So I'm curious, just like walk me through the the testing plan. People want to know, how are you going to actually evaluate these things? The first big question with the studio is going to be how much has it improved from the last studio that we tested? And so for that, I'll just be doing a really close, like, everything we did on the last studio, let's do it on this studio. How much of an improvement are we seeing? Then what does that say about these new chips, since this is our first time getting a look at those? Then we're going to look at that versus the Pro. Now, we expect the performance of the Studio and the Pro to be the same because they're like everything about them is the same. We'll sort of double check that and make sure there's no 
like, surprise, this one's cooling is terrible or something. Uh, and then there's another question of just, like, why buy the Pro? <laughs> why buy the Mac yeah. Pro? I think a lot of people are asking that question right now. Yeah. Very, very good question. <laughs> That's going to be a little less up to testing and more of, like, you know, talking to people, seeing, you know, are you thinking about buying this? Would you buy this? How much does the PCIe stuff, like, impact your life? So those are going to be the those are going to be the three big questions going into it. Okay. I suspect the studio has reached a point where it is kind of the default choice for this kind of computer, right? And Apple seems to see it that way too that it's like if you have a crazy system you need a lot of powerful things for that plug into the ports that the Pro has terrific by a pro it's seven thousand dollars but if you <laughs> want apple's most powerful desktop computer like most people that answer is the studio now right is that kind of the operating assumption at this yeah point? i mean insofar as these things have the same chips in them right like the, stu- the studio is is nicer looking in my opinion it's easier to slot into places you don't love the cheese grater i love the cheese grater. <laughs> i mean maybe there are some people out there who are just like big fans of big fans of cheese graters and <laughs> I'll that's pay five thousand dollars for a cheese grater right now yeah then you'll be paying it. a lot more for it but <laughs> <laughs> so it seems to me like given how much more expensive the pro is like the burden should be on the pro to prove why you should pay more money for it and at the moment I, d- I don't really see intuitively like why it would be worth that much more um but we're gonna we're gonna dig in and we're gonna we're gonna try to find out fair enough all right well thank you good luck i hope you're not in Mac hell for too, too much longer. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) All right. Before we go, let's head up the Vergecast hotline and see if we can help somebody out this week. Our question this week comes from Michael. Hello, this is Michael from Nashville, Tennessee. My wife and I are starting to plan on having children, and I have found that Trying to find actual good sources of information on baby tech is a minefield of SEO and just horrible to find actual recommendations on security for tech related to babies. I'm curious if y'all have any recommendations on either specific tech, which would be great, but even more broadly, just how to find good sources of information about that and what to look for to be safe. Just any advice you have on that would be great. I appreciate it. Have a great day. I really like this question in part because as the parent of a six-month-old, I am deep in the middle of all of this right now. But I also like it because it's just a question about how do you trust things on the internet. I will say for me, two things have come in really handy. One is just finding a couple of sources you trust. This is just good advice for anything on the internet. For me, the website BabyList has been incredibly useful. I've just found myself going there and it's kind of like what the wire cutter is for gadgets. Like you can do a bunch of research or you can just buy the thing they recommend and it works out fine. BabyList is great. There's also a YouTuber called DadVerb that I really like. There's a lot of stuff on baby YouTube. But DadVerb for me has been somebody who I I feel like I trust his taste and he has good ideas about things. And this is the weirdest advice I'm going to give you. I have found... ChatGPT and other chatbots to be incredibly useful for finding baby stuff. Don't trust any of the information that it gives you. But what it's very good at is figuring out like which products a lot of folks talk about. So it kind of gives you a place to start. You can just say like, what are popular strollers? Or what's 
a bathtub toy that a lot of people like. And it'll just sort of throw options at you. And then you can at least narrow down your research to a handful of things instead of totally starting from scratch with everything. But Michael, mostly know that I feel your pain. It's awful. And you do things like Google, why is my baby coughing? And it's a total disaster. Just don't panic and find a couple of places you trust and stick with that. So that's my advice. But for more advice, uh, I called Jen Patizantui, who is both a parent and our smart home reviewer, so is well-versed in all of the questions about tech in particular that you should bring into your house. Here's what she said. My sort of number one piece of advice, if you're going to use any kind of video monitoring, is only buy from trusted companies, um, companies that you know the brand name, you know the security and privacy, you can read their um, policies online um, or abbreviated versions of them. You know how this company is going to manage your data. But if you're concerned, you can also do things locally. Apple HomeKit, for example, has a HomeKit secure video element that processes all video locally. Um, so that's a good option. There are a lot of great dedicated baby monitors that are smart, but there's no reason why you can't just use a standard smart home security camera and adapt it to your needs if you want to do something like monitoring your child. But honestly, I think it's worse as a parent to have a video feed. <laughs> I think watching your baby all the time is a little, you know, from my personal experience, I think audio is absolutely fine. I don't, you know, I feel like audio is probably the best way. You're more likely to hear something than you are to see something. So audio baby monitors, you know, those work locally over local frequencies in your home, normally 2.4 gigahertz, which is, as we've discussed in, before, is a crowded band, but is just as useful to alert you to problems. It's a, it's a bit of a minefield, parenting tech. The lists that they tell you, you need all of this when you have a kid. And then six months later, there's this pile of boxes that you never even opened of things. <laughs> so yeah, wait for the, a use case and then look at specific devices and look into the privacy and security there rather than like trying to kit everything out beforehand, which can be complicated. <laughs> All right, that is it for The Vergecast today. Thanks to everybody who came on the show, and thank you, as always, for listening. There is, as ever, lots more on all the stuff we talked about, especially the Reddit chaos at TheVerge.com. We'll put some links in the show notes, but also, you know, read the website. We have a story stream on all the Reddit stuff. It's super helpful. It's a very confusing, weird story, and it seems to change all the time. Check that out. If you have thoughts, questions, feelings, or favorite subreddits that are still alive that you want to talk about, you can always email us at vergecast at theverge.com or keep calling the hotline. We're going to try and answer a question on here every week. I think we're going to do a whole hotline episode soon. So keep sending us all of your questions, 866-VERGE-11. And as again, if you don't want to call, vergecast at theverge.com. That works great too. This show is produced by Andrew Marino and Liam James. Brooke Minters is our editorial director of audio. The Vergecast is a Verge production and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Neilai, Alex, and I will be back on Friday to talk presumably more about Reddit, but also Instant Pots, smart homes, and lots more. We'll see you then. Rock and roll. Thanks to Canva for their support. Canva wants to make your presentations come as easy as those thoughts that pass through your head. And thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.